decided to leave it for the for the glorious world of salami. So. <laughs> Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. All right. My guest today is Bob Blade of Salt Blade. I'm going to say salami, but it's more than that. But I know you as Bob Blade of Salt Blade Salami because of an introduction that was made. Boy, was that a couple years ago from a dear friend of mine, uh, Jim Hunger, who owned a company called uh, Belly Rub Spice Rubs. And he met you at a farmer's market. He no, it's a, it's a better story than that. He met me. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Okay. He met me. Um, I was checking out at the Fred oh, Meyer, right. which, he, which was his day job, kind of working at the Fred Meyer. Right. And, and he just started yeah. joking with me because I bought six bottles of Marsala wine, which is what I use in one of the flavors of salami we make. And he's <laughs> like, oh, you really like Marsala, huh? <laughs> and then he said, do you even drink this stuff? And I was like, no, I don't drink it. I put it in salami. And then we started the conversation about his spice rub company and we became good friends from that. So, okay. I had forgotten that part because he had told me that he met you at, at Freddy's. Yeah. So anyway, when I met you, it was at a farmer's market. Uh, he, Jim was speaking glowingly of what you were doing and I can understand why now. And so we've been trying to get you on as a guest and schedules just, you know, you've schedules got a lot of what they on. are. Yes. They are what they are. So Bob, I'm going to, I'm going to be quiet now and kick it over to you. So, I, what I'm going to say is I'm going to give you a little little bit of what I know of your background, and I'd like you to fill it in. So IT in the medical medical field. Yes. You decided to make salami instead. I know there's a story there. Why don't right. you tell me? Sure, sure. I'll, I'll intro a little bit of the company first. So sure. my business is Salt Blade. My name is Bob Blade. We kind of snuck the last name into the company name there too. But I wanted to, when I left the world of IT, which I'll come back to that story. I wanted to do something. I knew I wanted to do something culinary related. I didn't know what, but it could have been anything. It could have been in distribution or in, but I wanted to make the world, the food systems of the world look like the way I believe they should look. So it became really focused on meat. I knew that much. And I know I wanted to support local farms that are using the type of practices I like to believe in. So eventually I sort of came up with the idea like, like a winery is kind of free to make a different wine every year out of the grapes available to them. And I thought I could do that with meat. So I kind of wanted to make a whole charcuterie business where I get local animals and I get to let them express themselves. The one thing I didn't want to do was make the same recipes over and over and over again, which was idiotic thinking. I absolutely want to make the same recipes over and over again. <laughs> I figured that out pretty quickly. So. But yeah, I started, I kind of started a little underground meat thing where I was doing, doing something cured and something cooked and something fresh along with homemade pickles and mustards and things every month. And, and after a year of that, I sort of figured out that the cured stuff that I was doing was the only real value add that I could see going in the market. I couldn't see a, a restaurant chef buying a pate for me because they should be able to make their own pate. And I also didn't see those things selling well in grocery stores. So it kind of became the salami became my focus. And yeah, on the, on the sourcing of the meat, an interesting thing right now, all my meat, always all my meat has come from Olson farms in Colville. And I met Brent Olson at the farmer's market in Ballard. And I literally, I'd called several local farms when I'd gotten my federal grant of inspection. They told me my start date was October 15th. This was in 2014. And they told me that about six weeks in advance. So I knew, okay, time to start finding my meat sourcing. And I called a couple of local farms that I was already in contact with, and none of them had meat available. And at the time in 2014, there was a blight on the pigs in this side of the Cascade Mountains. And they had put down all the young ones. And it was actually a coronavirus that came from Midwest pork supplies transferred into our meat and killed off our young pigs here. So several farms I called, they're like, we can't get meat ourselves. We're trying to buy meat now. <laughs> and I was like, ah, I got to start a business based on this. So I literally went down to the farmer's market and I sort of sheepishly asked Brent Olson at Olson Farms, like, could you supply me maybe 25 pounds of meat a week? And he was like, sure, no problem. He's on the other side of the cascade. So his pigs were safe. 
Mm-hmm. And <laughs> that's where it began. He came in and he thought, this is funny, a little 25 pound meat order. And he came into my little 340 square foot production space, which was gorgeous. Right now we're in 7,000 square feet right. for comparison. And we're going through about 1200 pounds of meat a week. And we're trying to double that up hopefully in the next few months here. But but yeah, he's been able to grow the whole way with me, but it started very, very, very small. So I got to ask, I'm going to, I'm going to pause you there and we're going to come back, but I want to ask about this underground meat thing. Cause that sounds kind of, you know, uh, interesting to me. Yeah. How, yeah. how are you, how are you? Okay. So you were, I'll say testing your, your concepts out, right? Correct. And, Correct. But how were, how were you finding I'm sure it wouldn't be hard, but how were you finding willing people to try out your creations? Yeah, no, that wasn't hard. It was just a few friends. (laughs) To be honest, it was a handful of friends buying and it was kind of, you know, I rolled it out as kind of a suggested donation thing, but it was like 60 bucks. You got a big pile of meat and stuff. So. (laughs) By word of mouth and all of that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was just friends and it was a way for me to more or less just cover the cost of doing it so that I could mm-hmm. knock out a whole bunch of recipes and make a whole bunch of things at a little bigger volume than I was used to making just as a way to test it. And it was a lot of fun. Came up with a lot of great recipes during that time period, a lot of which are part of Salt Blade now. Mm-hmm. Some of so which where did are you, too. Where did you find uh, your initial recipes at? Where, where, does one, where does one learn the art of salami? Sure. I, I, I definitely bought every book available on the topic. So if I wanted to make a very traditional recipe, I would just sort of cull all the traditional publications I could find and mm-hmm. sort of do a best of breed of my own, what I felt like doing out of it. But so those are straightforward. There are some that were completely creative and those are just like, I've got an orange and coriander one. That's just, I use fresh orange zest and juice and a little bit of fresh rosemary in it, toasted coriander seeds. Those were just kind of my own ideas. And then like kind of my signature one is a traditional Balinese style salami. It's called Uratan. And that one, I've got a publication. One of my books has a recipe for it and it's a terrible recipe. So I was doing some research on it. And this is a product that's really tough to do research on, but I was pouring, pouring everything. And eventually I found an article written about it in the journal of biomedical engineering. So, which goes to my background a little bit. I had a degree in biomedical engineering, but this article was analyzing the product in Bali to see what was making it safe because they were not inoculating it with, with lactic acid producing bacterial cultures. Okay. And so they analyzed it and they figured out the same cultures that we inoculate with it were naturally occurring there basically. And in the course of this, then they made a batch and inoculated it to taste compare it. And so they kind of had printed recipe right in the, right in the journal. <laughs> so this article with all fresh ingredients, fresh galangal, fresh ginger. And that, that was the one that kicked me off on this whole, like on my very first batch, I tasted it and I was started the food club immediately. Like that day is when I was like, people have to okay. eat this, this salami right here. And so that was the one that definitely spurred me on to the whole business that's, and kind of what focused me on salami more than anything else. That's kind of, I mean, it's an interesting tie to your, your background, but I would have never th- imagined in a hundred years that you would have guessed or you would have said, Hey, guess where I got this recipe from? I would not yeah. have been. No, no I, I can't, I can't find the article since, but I do have a PDF copy of it saved on my computer. So, <laughs> so you have it. All right. So I have it, which is great because yeah, they literally just print this recipe and it's not written like a recipe later cookbook. It's written in a paragraph, you know, where they just oh name the ingredients in the amount, how many grams of everything. So when you started out, we had this, this blight on, on pork. So you were, mm-hmm. Nothing about starting a business is easy and fun. I mean, contrary to popular belief, it's always, you know, I think chaotic, which is fun. Don't get me wrong, but it's nothing goes, you know, I think Mike Tyson has a thing, you know, you can prepare for a fight as well as you want until somebody punches you in the face and then it's all out. And it kind of business is kind of that way to me too, but you started off. And so one of the things you said is a 340 square foot space. Yes. So that's not particularly large. It's not a big space. It was one and, and it was just you. Yeah, it was me and my USDA inspector every day. So the USDA inspection service is a daily Monday through Friday inspection. So and even though me, it was walk, just me, one employee, my inspector came in every day. So just walk me through this though. I mean, they're not there 
from nine to five with you. They're, no, they show up whenever they want. They do. On, on my circuit, the inspectors are seeing at the time four or five facilities in a day. Okay. So they would, they would, you know, spend all their day between those four or five. So they would come in as long as they chose to come in. It was tough for them when I was a small business because I mean, some days I would do two and a half hours of work and I'd be finished. You know, I'd make all the salami so, I was going to make for the day and it was done. So do you, did you have to sit around and wait for the inspector to show up that day? No, or what? more to the opposite. Okay. They had to work around my schedule kind of. So they had to try to show up while I was there. So I would always be very, very proactive with them to say, hey, today I'll just be in from, you know, eight to noon. So they would know when okay. to come in. Okay. And my, my approved hours, you sort of you get, the government gives you five consecutive days of inspection service and eight hours a day. But so you read that and you think like, I get to pick that. Well, on my circuit, I didn't get to pick it. They assigned me those hours and that's because okay. they've got other facilities they're inspecting. So I know plenty of people who've started the business thinking like, Oh, I, I can do this as a side job and I can you know use my inspection hours from 4 PM to midnight or whatever. And it's like, no, the government tells you your hours. It doesn't work the other way around. So I was 7 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. are the hours that I still have that were assigned to me. So technically speaking, then, somebody has to be at the facility at 7 a.m. to 3.30. Never, no? no, we never have to be there. They, The inspection can show up anytime they want. But if we're not operating, we're just not operating. So, so okay. again, I'm always proactive with my, my inspectors. I always let them know my hours so that they don't waste their time. Right. So what is, what are they looking for? I mean, they, it's so many things um, they do. I mean, they look at general sanitation always. So they write up what they call non-compliance reports. And if there's any issues and then you have to resolve those issues and document the fix for it and you can close mm-hmm. the non-compliance report. And those can be for a variety of things like, like what we call the pre-op inspection. We have pre-operational procedures that are sanitation procedures. And when we're finished with them, we check some paperwork and say pre-op is done. And mm-hmm. once a week, the inspectors like to stop and inspect everything. And if they find like a piece of meat on one of the pieces of equipment that you're about to use, it's clearly unsanitary condition right there. And they would write that up and you'd have to fix it by cleaning it, documenting how you cleaned it and how you're not going to let that happen again in the future, that type of thing. But they also do, they have random tasks like label audits where they sort of review your labels and your ingredients that you're putting into it to make sure there are no undeclared allergens or mistakes on the labels or you name it. There's a, there's a series of tasks that they do. Many of them are randomly assigned to them and they take samples on average, I bet once every other month, they take samples and send them off to their labs of our finished product for testing for listeria primarily, but E. coli as well. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So we, my do our own, we do our own testing regimen as well. So like I have monthly food contact surface tests where I test for hysteria in my shop. So my takeaway paperwork heavy. Sorry. Right. Yeah. So my takeaway from this is if I wanted to open up my own little micro food business and do it when I feel like doing it, that might not be a good plan. Well, it's very different with meat than it is with other things. Very, very different. So as soon as you went away from meat, I mean, if you were, if you were doing jams, you could do it out of your house under our cottage industry laws. Okay. So okay. you can do it any way you want. If even if you had a restaurant, you'd be inspected twice a year by inspectors, okay. not daily. It's only when you cross over into this. I'm under the Food Safety Inspection Service of the USDA. Okay, all right. So you started out. You had 340 square feet. You and you and your inspector. Mm-hmm. How when you went above ground? Because you you called it below ground. So you 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 went above ground. How did you start? presenting the product to the public. Yeah. I, so I worked on a farmer's market. That was kind of my first big sales outlet. And that was in the summertime of 15. So mm-hmm. I started teeny. I did one sale. I started in October. So I had product ready to sell by mid November or so, but not much of it. And I did one sale at a brewery, which is right by my shop called lantern brewing. And it's great. They're still good friends, but that was a really fun night and we sold. And then I did another event in January or February at a different brewery. That's another friend of mine's place. And beyond that, I approached a couple little stores. There's one little store like green market in uh, sunset Hill here in Seattle. And they just a teeny little store, but I called her 
because she carried lots of local products and she was excited to bring it in. So she did. But really, I didn't start selling at any real volume until I got to the farmer's market. And that was, okay. I worked Magnolia Farmer's Market in the summer of 15. And this year we did, I think, 20 different farmer's markets a week. But I That's only cool. held it to one all the way through 19. And then in 20, I was planning on doing a bunch and things went sideways in a big way in 20. So we ended up in about five, I think. But I was trying to do a lot more than that in 20. But but this year you've... you've- when we came over and we saw the facility, we, you know, we were talking, you'd meant, you know, I think you're getting a car ready for or getting, you're kind of showing us how they had to, where they came in, got the stuff and took off to the, you know, your, your teams. That's got to just be simple to organize. I mean, that can't, there, nothing can go wrong with trying right. to do 20 farmers. Markets. <laughs> yes. No, I, I did have to hire a full-time manager for that job. She doesn't work markets herself. She just, Wow. Schedules who's okay. working, packs them in and out. I mean, this is the inventory management side of that is the logistical nightmare. And I already knew that would be the only time I've done so many events in a week was in sort of the holiday season in 2019. Mm-hmm. Turning over from five events a day to five events the next day is, is many, many hours worth of inventory updating and, and logging sales and it, and then repacking for a new market and logging all the inventory packed up. So it's it's a crazy amount of work. So we do have someone who's poor thing. That's her job. It's a hard job, but she does it. <laughs> well, yeah. Let's just keep going down the farmers market because you know that's. I I know you well enough to know that if it wasn't working, you wouldn't keep doing it. You know, so the, it, it obviously is. Yeah. I'd love to say that's true. <laughs> well, but you know, it, it, but but why do you think why do you think your products are are well received at farmers markets? Well, definitely we have. I mean, my my core ethical value is the same as anyone who would shop at the farmer's market would believe in. And farmer's Mm -hmm. markets are always important for us for that reason. For me, keeping them on is to help, even to help tell the story of what we believe in. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm trying to sell to a grocery store and I say we primarily sell at farmer's markets, they understand immediately the type of product Mm -hmm. we are. And without having to give them the big spiel about the sourcing of the meat and everything else, it kind of jump starts the whole conversation. And that's true. And and yes, they do work out. They're very hit and miss and they're very unpredictable, the markets. But for me, the, the going wider into markets this year was about exposing to new sort of new neighborhoods, new areas, mm-hmm. new cities. So, so how far did you go this year? Future business. We've, how we far did in, you go this year? Like, we're in Tacoma. We've got a couple different ones we do in Tacoma. We do mm-hmm. some up in... Um, Snohomish, Everett, Shoreline, out in Issaquah, down in Auburn, uh, Lake Forest Park. Um, We're kind of all over the place. We've got some Bellevue and Edmonds. Did you say Puyallup? Do you do Puyallup? Not Puyallup. Not Puyallup. We do Auburn. You do Auburn. Okay. Yeah, Puyallup. There are so many good ones on the weekends. We limited ourselves to five. So I have five tents, five sets of tables, five sets of weights, like... We can run five <laughs> markets, but the Saturday and Sunday are the hardest decisions because there are so many good ones that I would love to pick eight or nine on a Saturday to do because there are a lot of good ones. So it was just a, mm-hmm. at some point it became a decision of we can't do them all. Let's just pick the five we want to do. Right. We have the U district is just every other week for us. Mm-hmm. And on the alternating weeks, we alternate that. So we've got Arlington once every four weeks and we've got, um, on the shoreline every four weeks as well. And we'll probably do more of that in the future so we can cover more markets on Sundays as well. Start kind of playing the game of, we don't need to be here every week, but we'd like to keep a presence here. Sure. So when we first met, I think we, we talked about in, in <clears throat> you had a pivot because you were doing a lot of wholesale to ho- hotels. Correct. And, and that's correct. And that kind of all disappeared for a while, right? And so it did. It did. I, I'll tell the story fully. It's I kind of lost eighty-seven percent of my business in March of twenty twenty. Uh, the only things I was left with were the grocery stores and the online sales, which added up to exactly thirteen percent of my business in two thousand nineteen. Wow. So okay. yeah, we kind of lost all of it. Um, so I went hard to social media first mm-hmm. off. 
And that worked really well. I hated doing social media and I don't do it myself anymore. Scott's daughter actually does it for me right now. <laughs> She's wonderful because I hated doing it, but I went to it hard because I had to. It was kind of the only way to really directly connect to my, to my consumers out there. And that helped boost online sales. Then I also did some things like I went to Hagen's Northwest. I started chatting with them pre-pandemic and then the pandemic hit and they were swamped. And they basically told me, don't even think about talking to the execs. The execs are stocking shelves at night right now. Mm-hmm. But nice. about a weekend, I was like, well, I'm desperate. So I sent them an email anyway. And within an hour, I think, of my email to them, I got a phone call back. And they said, we are trying to help companies like you right now. We're fast tracking you on. So their, oh, their wow. paperwork process is pretty onerous, but they made it super streamlined just to try to get their, like, they were dedicated small businesses and they had 17 stores, huge orders for me. Right. And then I was like every month, it was month to month and it was finding new things that all seemed unrepeatable, but they kept happening. Like we got, mm-hmm. we got a deal with Zeke's pizza where we did a seasonal pie for them. And mm-hmm. You know, that in a couple of months, that ended up being, I think, I think we did about 37,000 in sales to them for those two months. And like all these big things that were just like, well, it won't be here next month, though. I don't know what's going to happen next month, but it just kept happening over and over. We kept finding new ways to sell. And so we were by June of 2020 having lost again. Well, the farmer's markets came back in Mm -hmm. June and they were about 20% of our sales the year before. Um, but we were doing two and a half times sales volume as we were in 19 by June of 2020. And that held through July and August and September as well. It fell apart in the holiday season because there was no holiday season, but right. it, it right. was still an impressive year because we were doing it with, I had three people working for me in the pandemic and we, cause we were super light time of year anyway, January, February are dead for us. They're dead for Okay. Yeah. So we were kind of in that light time of year anyway. And now you weren't doing this. Let me interrupt you, but you weren't doing mm-hmm. this. And when did you move from 340 square feet to the space that. Oh we, yeah. Two years, two years in. So, so how I big, did that back in yeah. 16 In 16, I went to 1200 square feet Okay, and I got very lucky. The, the building I was in the, my neighbors inside of that building through a shared wall was a, it was a, it was a medical marijuana dispensary. Mm-hmm. And that was around the time that, two years in is when legalization happened and all the medical places went away and they were also building a new school. So there was not going to be another pot place there. because it was too close to a new school. Okay. And so it was very lucky for me because I, the build out I had done was I converted what looked like an office building into what looked like a food production place. So I ripped right. out carpeting, ground down the concrete, laid epoxy floors, put in a floor drain, put in a new electrical panel, put in all this stuff and by taking over the place next to me, I was able to just duplicate that process there, except I didn't have to add a new sink. I didn't have to add anything. I just cut a hole in the wall and opened them up to each other. And, and it was, I mean, yes, the, the ease that that made for me was incredible. So then I was in 1200 square feet and then I had several employees at that point. So yeah. when we came through that day, we came through to mm-hmm. that space. It was still pretty crowded, Bob. It was crowded. Yeah, we it was were, pretty crowded. Oh my God, but we crowded. It was I, this last year in that space. We moved just about a month ago, about five weeks ago, I think. But we were, it was impossible. We were on top of each other. We were working off folding tables in squeezed in between of our stainless tables and mm-hmm. working around boxes of inventory because we had nowhere else we could possibly put it except in stacks on the ground into pillars of inventory. And yeah, we were, we, we'd overpacked that curing chamber. Somehow we, uh, I designed I, it to be able to process a thousand pounds of meat a week in it. And we were at 1200 pounds. So we had just found ways to make optimizing it. And I can't imagine, I mean, when we walked through, so we added two extra bodies, you know, Kenzie and I were walking through, <laughs> but you know, that was, we tried to stay out of the way because I mean, we were just getting a tour, but I can't imagine what it would have been like when the, uh, the USDA inspector was there doing their thing. And it, it just, you, it was, it was crazy. Yeah, I mean, to my me, inspector to was me, you, funny at the time he would dance his way through. He'd be like, Oh my God, it's tight in here. <laughs> and he would just yeah. walk around. It's like you, you exceeded the fire code. I mean, it was, it was crazy, but it was nuts. But then, so there's there's more to this story, and this is the part that's really cool. So later, after we we talked to you there, we walked over to this 
new facility that you had. Yes, one block away. Sourced. And it's what, 7,000 square feet? It is, yes. With what, 16 foot ceilings? 12 foot Uh, ceilings? Probably 18. I think they're 18. Yeah. So it's a, to me, it's a cavernous space compared to what we had just seen 10 minutes (laughs) earlier, right? And so you've now moved into this 7,000 square foot facility. I'm sure that went smooth. Nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> it, was slowed as, you. it was as good as we could do. That's for sure. Yeah. We got moved. And, but so where I'm going with all this, and to me, which is the, the fascinating part about this is that you're selling cured meats. You started out 340 square feet. You moved to 1200 square feet. Now you're, you know, now you're moving up to 7,000 square feet. And you did all of this while we're still in a, uncertain time how's that is it's, that a is that a fair way to call it I, I you know that's an understatement yes yeah we don't know i mean you know we don't know what tomorrow anyway so i applaud you and your your entrepreneurial spirit for growing during this time of uncertainty and so i want to talk about the build-up but then i want to come back and talk about the salami itself so you mentioned 1200 pounds of meat earlier in the conversation and you're yes. trying to double that to 2400 well, pounds well yeah, we're going to have to work our way there for sure. But that's the goal. I mean, your the goal is to go from 12 to 24, not Well, that, tomorrow, that's the immediate goal. Yeah, that's the immediate goal. Yeah, it, okay. it, within, you know, realistically, you saw this facility that was overcrowded. We were making <laughs> everything we could make in that facility, everything we could. And I couldn't dream of approaching a new account or taking on a new customer because we couldn't make a salami. Right. So now I can talk to people again. I can have conversations and start getting into new accounts and and that's the goal so there's several conversations going on now that i just couldn't had six months ago so the small space the 1200 space was that doing that was doing 1200 pounds a week we had kind of i think maybe on our biggest week we hit that we were at between the thousand and eleven hundred normally okay we do we definitely hit the 1200 Wow. We were just, we were just impossibly crowded in there is <laughs> our curing chamber is 180 square feet and right now our carrying chamber, the first one we built in the new facility is 600 square feet. We're probably going to build a second one in there, but 600 square feet is three and a half times the old one. Right. And even though we're making as much or we're making a little bit more salami, but not a ton more, we're running into equipment things right now. I've already ordered some new equipment that'll be shipping this week, but yeah, we, we can't grow with our hand process right now. We've got to grow with equipment. We need a faster okay. grinder. We need, you know, bigger and better things. So, um, but yeah, the chamber, which is huge, looks completely empty. It's like, it's a ghost town compared to the old one where we were (laughs) squeezing our way in between things. It was so tight. We were, were, you know, we, we use baker's racks, we call them speed (laughs) racks, but the kind of sheet pan racks, that's what we Mm -hmm. use. And we hang our meat on cure it on it. And things were so tight. Those, the wheels on those things have some locking mechanisms. We had to disassemble all those and take the locks off because we were squeezing them in between things. And that lock was too much space. It would hang up on other carts. So we uh, were like okay. squeezing every way we could squeeze space. Okay. So the new space, do you have like a five-year plan for it? Is there? Not you- really. Not, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think in the five-year plan anymore. That's what I started the business with. Okay. And I kind of, I definitely had outlined my first five years and, and I stayed dedicated to that path of like, when do I need to hire somebody? The first hire was the toughest one, but I knew because essentially I'm not making any money and I'm now paying someone to do what I can do myself. Mm-hmm. It was a hard thing to do, but yes, I knew, it is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but I knew I had to do it because I knew within you know, six months from there where I wanted to be. And I would need a second hire. I need to get through the paperwork process. I need to have my bookkeeper, you know, working everything, have the onboarding Mm -hmm. process built. So I kind of stuck to my plan and did it. I don't really have a five-year plan now. The business consultant I'm working with now, we kind of, we kind of do three years. Okay. And the three years sort of guides a detailed one-year plan. And every year you scrap it and come up with a new three-year vision and a, you know, Mm one-year vision based on that. Right. So that's kind of the that's kind of the process I'm working with right now. So, and that's as that's as realistically as far ahead as I can look anyway. Okay. As of today, because I know this answer is going to change tomorrow, and it would be different a month ago. 
Mm-hmm. As of today, how many different varieties of salami are you currently producing? That's a good question. We have 11 in my standard lineup. So okay. that 11 are our year-round sort of staples. Right now, we are making three others beyond that. So we've got three sort of seasonals, and, and that'll change quickly. One, it's going to be finishing off in a couple of weeks here, and then we're going to be bringing in an Oktoberfest, and I think we're going to bring in a fall one that's, that's with venison. And sour cherries mm-hmm. that that's something that my new production manager has developed so we're kind of releasing some of his seasonals we've got a lot in the in the repertoire there are other things there's some ones that i like to call the boozy ones we've got one that mm-hmm. we do with west sun distillings whiskey and one with copperworks gin and we use um, a local um a local ouzo for another one and all those will come back for the holiday season we'll have our boozy trio we call it but, you know, it's kind of the 11 is the standard lineup. And I'm trying to realistically right now we're making a truffle salami, too. That's mm-hmm. that was meant to be a seasonal. And I it's almost certain that I'll never be able to stop making that one. It sells so very well. And, and we love it so much that it's probably a permanent. I'm just reluctant to use that word right now. So, Well, I want to talk to you about the whiskey one. Mm hmm. In full disclosure, you know, I've had it. I've tried it. I've tried the gin one. I'm not a fan of gin. That Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with your salami, but my wife loves gin. I'm, that's not mine. I I like whiskey. Where did you get, I've never, I never thought about pairing in the salami. Not that I think about making salami, but the idea of, where did you come up with the idea of, of making a whiskey, a whiskey or a boozy salami series? Uh, that one, I mean, the the whiskey was, to me, just a natural kind of fit. Um, mm-hmm. So that wasn't a stretch of imagination for me. And then the, the gin, this was both the gin and the ouzo are actually my former production manager's idea. And uh-huh. he was he was terrific. Super culinary guy, young, energetic, fun. He stepped down from the role because he's going back, he went back to school full time. So mm-hmm. it was a very sad thing to lose him, but his name was Peter Ricky and he was tons of fun, but he sort of rolled the idea. He found the Uzo from a, a locally made Uzo, which I didn't even know we had. It's in Lakemont, a little South of Tacoma. They make it down there, a really nice young couple. And I was probably close to my age. They're not young anymore, but you know, they're, <laughs> <laughs> they make this great product and he had the idea for the Uzo too. Like right? so the, the Copperworks gin, I'd been talking to them about developing a house salami for their tasting room. Okay. So Copperworks okay. and I had been, we were old friends. We had been in chats for a while. Wesson has been buying from us for years and okay. we were a natural fit too. So we're very close with them. But he sort of pulled the Uzo one out and he's like, I found a locally made Uzo and I made a salami with it. I was like, okay, we've got a trio now. <laughs> so that's how the trio created. All right, so I need, I'm going to ask you to not not share secrets or say, per se, but how does one put a ouzo, a gin, or a whiskey into a salami? What's the oh, what's the going on there? It's easy. Yeah. We had we had liquid additions to the meat anyway. Like it, the okay. ground meat itself would be very tough to work with without some liquid added to it. Okay, so we're adding liquid anyway. So traditionally, a lot of that liquid, a portion of it, is wine. You know, in so many okay, salamis, right, right. we use whites and red, white and red wines, but the, that's where the booze goes into. So you just pour it in. We do some with beer as well. Like our Oktoberfest okay. one, we'll use Rubens Brews, Pilsner. That'll be coming up. We'll probably start making that next week, I guess. All right. So I have two questions. And so a batch of whiskey salami. What, what, how big of a, a batch are you guys making these days? Uh, our batches are, uh, are limited by the the bus tubs that we mix them in essentially we mm-hmm. can fit about 55 pounds of meat so that's our batch okay. size so about how much whiskey goes into 55 that a 55 pound batch? that's about like one and two-thirds bottles of whiskey okay and and this is really good whiskey <laughs> no i know westmoreland is, is expensive and delicious uh, and incredible and we're, yeah no i mean that makes me cry a little so bit every time we then the other question i have is when it's cured does it does it still have an alcohol content to it or is the alcohol less than two bottles into 55 pounds of meat? So that's not a lot of, I mean, it's a lot of whiskey, but it's not a lot of whiskey. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's kind of almost makes me cry to see it poured in and not oh, yeah. consumed. Okay. But 
So during the curing process, does does the what happens to the alcohol content? Yeah, it it just drives off. It evaporates out. So, so from can- our from our wet weight, the weight that we hang the meat, we are losing fifty five percent of the weight by the time it's fully dried. So we dry down to about forty five percent remaining. Okay. Okay. So yeah, all the all the liquid stuff is is just evaporating off. So when you're testing, when you're when you're making a, a test batch, and let's say somebody says, "Hey, we should put tequila in the salami," um, how big a batch are we testing with? So we've got a great process for testing. We we can do half pound batches, which is oh, basically wow. two two sticks of salami or so. Wow. So we've okay. got a great process for mixing that. It's you know the spicing. It's a little tricky at that teeny volume. Mm-hmm. When we scale up, we have to tweak a little bit more because it's just such small amounts to measure. But we do that. So we've got this great process. And again, this process was developed by Peter, my former production manager. He he very cleverly did this and he found way he so he freezes half pound batches of meat so that anytime we want to do a test batch, we can just thaw that out and, oh, okay. and do a little test with that. And we also Instead of doing it into sort of our normal hog casings, if we want to go really fast, we can put it into sheep casings, which dry, you know, they're much skinnier, ends up drying to something that looks like a beef, like a, like a Slim Jim size thing that dries in about four days. So we can really turn test batches and flavor form like formulations very, very, very quickly in our shop. So you have 11 current, Full-time candidate, you know, full-time yes. products. Yes. Truffles maybe going to be the 12th, you know, it yeah. might be the 12th man. I'll make a yeah. bad Seahawks reference to it. What, what are, I'm going to, you know, what are the current 11? Okay. So we kind of, <laughs> not to name them all, but to put them all sure. in kind of categories, we kind of have right. the spiciest ones and that the Uraton, the one I talked about, the traditional Balinese style one, that one has galangal, ginger, garlic, chilies, and turmeric, crazy exotic. That's our spiciest. Behind mm-hmm. it is the last flavor of the 11 that I developed in, which is our, we call it the salami picante. And that one I developed specifically because I needed something else spicy in the lineup mm-hmm. that, that did not have, you know, galangal and ginger in it. I needed something spicy that I could put on pizza. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make a Calabrese style, but give it our own twist. I was, so I was using local chilies from Tonemaker Farms, and I kind of went with theirs. Unfortunately, we've outgrown the local sourcing on that, which mm-hmm. is a shame, but it's it's the reality. We would take all we could of their harvest every year, and that's not even close to enough for us to do that's our right. production anymore. So we had to switch okay. over to some commercially available ones, but it's still based on their flavor, flavor profile of chilies is kind of what skewed my recipe formulation. We stay with that now. But yeah, yeah. we've got... We've got a, plenty of traditional ones. We've got a French like salsi salt and sec. We've got Tuscan salami and a Genoa salami and a soppressata. And we've got one of the ones I call the creative ones, which are we've got the uh, orange and coriander. And I think I spoke about that earlier. We've got one with porcini mm-hmm. mushroom, a porcini and sage, where we use fresh mm-hmm. and dried sage in it. And then we've got the one I call the Seattle stick, which has coffee and chocolate in it. So. So I've had that and I like it a lot. So, but how did you come up with that? That one. Cause that to me seems like an odd pairing. I mean, yeah, you know, it, is odd. it works. When I was hunting for space and finding a space to run this business, it was very difficult. Like finding a unit as small as I needed and one that would, the owners would let me turn it into a cured meat facility was no small task. So I was looking actively for about five months and one of the places I looked was um, was kind of a shared space behind a coffee roaster. And she was pretty excited about what I was doing. And she's like, oh, you can put, put our coffee into one of them. And that's literally what spurred the idea for me. And so I kind of had this idea of putting coffee in. And huh. we have, you know, some other salami makers in town, old salumi. And, mm-hmm. you know, I always like them. I, I love their mole salami, but I wouldn't do anything mole because they do. It would just mm-hmm. be professionally rude, I think. So okay. uh, that coffee one always stayed in my mind to go with cocoa nibs. And it kind of, I went, um, another one, I started with Theo cocoa nibs and I knew Joe Winnie, the founder of Theo. 
mm-hmm. and kind of had this idea. I went and talked to him. And when I first made, I finally, it was a year and a half, two years into the business before I could even pilot it as an idea because I just didn't have the capacity to make test batches at the time. Right. And when we got to there, I've kind of made it and took it down to meet with Joe at Theo and we tasted out in his tasting room. And I've since switched away from Theo. It's a bit of a longer story, but because they kind of, they ousted Joe from the board of directors a couple of years ago. And I feel like their sourcing may not be as ethical as it used to be. And this is kind okay. of the whole basis of why he started Theo and why I started Saltblade was mm-hmm. ethical sourcing. And that was kind of the Seattle stick was always to me, the celebration of that, of, of okay. like the stories of cocoa beans and coffee their sourcing is, you know, horrible throughout most of the world. And so the ethically sourced ones are what matter. And that's the same is true of meat to me. So this one tells the grander story of the ethical sourcing. So eventually I switched over to Indie Chocolate um, and Erin at Indie Chocolate and Pike Place Market. You know, she flies down. She knows the farmers directly that she buys from. She knows how it's impacting their lives. And this is kind of, this is the reason we exist. So... So when you're making the, the Seattle stick, how much coffee is going? So you, so so what is second? So with the whiskey and the gin and the uzo, you're dumping liquid in, or not dumping, yes. but you're, yeah, yeah, you're, you're you're putting bottles of whiskey in. With the coffee, how's the coffee going into? They go in stick? dry, dry, just like our spices. Yeah. So we grind them up. Okay. So we've got you know little spice mills, and we know exactly how many seconds we like to pulse everything. So okay. yeah, we're grinding those, um, and basically the limit on the cocoa nibs is that we don't want it to turn into cocoa butter on us. So we just get it as small as we can get it. And, and you okay. can see the little black flecks. The same is true of the coffee. We just grind it up. So those are not brewed or done anything okay. else with in, in particular. Just because I'm a coffee fan, have you tried making it with brewed coffee to, as a liquid component? Or No, does... never have. Never mm-hmm. have. I, th- I don't know that that would... I don't know what flavor would be left after it, you know, evaporated. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure the flavor would stay, but yeah, we, we do it with just the, just the beans themselves and it, right. the equivalent. I've, I've done the math on it. It's really like one stick of salami and my sticks are 3.8 ounces. It's about mm-hmm. eight inches long and about one inch in diameter. These mm-hmm. are the standard size that we make. And each one of those in the coffee and chocolate has about one coffee bean in it. Okay. So, yeah, so not you're not going to get a caffeine buzz out of it or anything like that. It's just a flavor addition. Okay. So I've got two questions. One is what's your number one selling salami? Yeah. Good question. I, I get this question all the time and I have an answer, but I'm not sure my answer is correct anymore. So okay. my answer is Tuscan salami. That has traditionally okay. been my best seller for many years right now. And it's got fennel seeds, peppercorns, red wine, and garlic. And it's the only mm-hmm. one I do with whole peppercorns in it. So when you slice it, you get those little cross cuts of pepper and you get variability bite to bite. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of my go-to, but um, I don't know if that's true anymore. It's all the, the specialty and seasonal ones we've been making, especially the truffle have been selling at such high volumes that it's not until the year ends that I'll be able to figure out what our best seller of the year was. Okay. But, but I do know that traditionally it always has been for these past six years, it's been the Tuscan. Okay. Now, this is going to be a tough question for you. It's, mm-hmm. you know, and it's almost impossible to answer, but uh, I'm going to ask it. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, everyone has that too. Okay, so. Uh, they're, my, they're my babies. They're all my babies. I, I know, I know. All. It's like, what, which, which is my favorite kid? Well, <laughs> yes, I can I, say that. Depending this. on the day, I can answer that. Um, no, yeah. but do you have, you said go-to. Is there is there one that you... Well, the Tuscan is is still my go-to, but my the Uraton, I can say this, is to me the most special thing. Okay. I call it our signature one. It really tells the story of Salt Blade. It shows the kind okay. of creativity and innovation and everything that we have. So because it sort of led me down to creating this whole company, it will always mm-hmm. be the most special okay. to me. Now, the flip side to that is through the years of doing this, did you ever have an idea to combine x and y thinking oh this would be delicious and it didn't work yeah lots of times um i'll say this we've struggled with beer like we've always wanted to we've got a couple of ones that we've made with beer that we were very happy with and that we've released um 
Mm-hmm. But for the most part, every idea we've had of ones to work with breweries, and we've got many good friends who are brewers, we just can't seem to make a flavor that we're happy enough with. Mm-hmm. So we're like, okay. it seemed like an imperial stout would make a good one. It seemed like a barley wine might work. It seems like, you know, this ale might work. And the results are just underwhelming. So okay. we've never been happy enough with them to release a product with them. Okay. Very untrue with the Pilsner, which was a surprise for us. But and we'll do that again for our Oktoberfest. We'll have Pilsner in it. But beer so has Pils- been tricky for us to work with. Okay. And then what I've about, had what, other flavors, like one that I developed a long time ago, back in my sort of piloting days, and it was um, it was based on Jamaican jerk seasoning. Okay. And so I put all the traditional ingredients that you would put in a jerk marinade kind of into it, and it was a great salami. I thought. But it's one that I like to call a palate wrecker. Like you eat it, you eat it alongside any other salami, and the other salami tastes like garbage <laughs> for that reason alone. Okay. And I've had to have this conversation with every one of my production managers. Like, we can't make something that makes our other products taste like garbage. <laughs> That's not allowed. That would be uh, really okay. Yeah, which is uh, totally different than not liking the product. I love the product, but mm-hmm. you just couldn't do it. For someone who thinks of salami as something you buy in a plastic disposable, you know, the slice stuff you see at the grocery store with, you know, for someone who um, thinks this doesn't have a, a, a vast knowledge of salami. Okay. You know, they, yes. they think of it yes. as just something that's on a pizza, you know, slice topping on, it's on a pizza or a, can you share with us a couple of ways to try salami to showcase it so that you're like, help educate the palate and, you know. Sure. Sure. I mean, my, my favorite way of eating the salami is sliced thin. So mm-hmm. I like it. I like it. I like to tell people like between a, a dime and a nickel is kind of the thickness okay. I'm going for when I'm slicing it, but around a dime kind of preferred for me on these small ones. And I, this is the way I eat it predominantly is, is just sliced up and have some cheese on the side, some crackers on the side, some condiments and fresh mm-hmm. fruit or whatever, just make your classic charcuterie board. And on mm-hmm. that, I'd love to have two to three flavors of salami so you can work around and play with it. But, you know, we do so many things with our salami in cooking too. the uraton that I do, I love in fried rice. And anytime oh. I make fried rice, I have to put it in there. It's delicious. I use, okay. um, I use salamis and I've used a variety of them as, as a topping for baked potatoes instead of, you know, crumbled bacon or something for a loaded baked potato. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be cooked at all. In that case, you just slice it up, dice it up and throw it on. Right. Um, we use it to saute at the base of green beans. I use it in omelets and in, you know, a whole variety of things. Okay. But still 90 plus percent of the way I eat it is all on its own, just sliced and just eat it on its own. And again, it's this, the meat that we use all comes from Olson Farms and Colville. They're using these heritage breed pigs. They've got they've got Berkshire and Duroc and some Tamworth out there, mm-hmm. and the meat is gorgeous and incredible. Like it's a deeper color than most of the beef that you'll find in the grocery stores. It's gorgeously deep red, and this is important mm-hmm. to me because these pigs are all sort of free range they're you know they're running around doing what they want uncaged it develops the myoglobin in the muscles so mm-hmm. myoglobin is important to us in salami making because cured meat the characteristic sort of flavor color and aroma and everything is is from nitros nitros sorry i'm gonna botch it up this morning nitros <laughs> i can't even say it today nitrosyl nitrosyl myoglobin <laughs> which I completely so, hammered because I haven't had enough coffee yet this morning, but um, that's, that's okay. Cause I'm not even going to try to repeat it, but yes, that's right. that should be the, okay. But basically we get the sodium nitrites and which is a salt like sodium chloride, but the, it's mm-hmm. the classic curing salt and in, in solution, once we mix it in, it forms nitric oxide and nitric oxide mm-hmm. bonds with the myoglobin. So, and it forms nitrosyl myoglobin. I'll say it right now, but so the, um, <laughs> That's the characteristic color and flavor of cured meat, and that's what we need. And okay. and so myoglobin is developed by moving the muscles by activity. So like okay. chickens, uh, the classic example I use is chickens have dark meat and white meat, we call it. That's mm-hmm. because they walk and they don't fly. 
ducks fly, they're all red meat. It's the, it's the muscles that are worked develop more myoglobin. So traditionally, oh. pigs, which are rooting animals, have more myoglobin in their shoulders than they do in their hind legs because, because they root. But they, these pigs, which are, they're, they're, we use their both equal parts. We kind of use shoulder meat and leg meat. And the leg meat on these is sometimes so red, I, can't, I just can't believe that it's the legs. Like these are animals that are out and active, and you can see it in the, in the meat itself. So you guys, one of the things that we kind of, and I know we're, we're running out of time, but one of the things we should have maybe done a little bit more on is the, is the, the supply chain, the ethically sourced, because uh, yes. that's super important to you. And I appreciate you sharing about the pigs, but what else are you guys doing uh, as a company for, because you mentioned working with other local, local vendors and all of that. Yes. Yes. I mean, mostly, I mean, what we make is meat and that's the, the large bulk of what we source is meat. So right. that's, right. you know, that's, that's, that's 99.999% of my inputs are, are meat. So that all right. comes from that one farm. Um, we certainly do the other things to try to support and celebrate other local companies, but it, in many ways, well, those are less about the sourcing, yeah. except in the case of the indie chocolate, you know, Right, but you but you're using a local whiskey maker, a local Absolutely. gin, a local uzo. So that's I think that's great that you're keeping it, you know, Puget Sound centric. Yes, definitely. Not. A taste a taste of the Puget Sound. If I were to turn you loose in the lab, what would you what, what would you cook up today? What would what I'm putting you on the spot? It's mm. it's eight o'clock in the morning when we're recording this. <laughs> right. So you know, <laughs> I'm I putting you on this. the spot. I will say this: I don't think about recipe formulation anymore number one because we have so many but number two because that was the one perk that i had to sort of leave with the production manager role okay this job is pretty i'm gonna put boring. you on i'm not we gonna let the you same off the thing hook. every I'm, day <laughs> i'm not gonna let you off the hook okay <laughs> okay what's give, in my me, mind yeah lately, what's in your mind right now I, I want something and this just came to light yesterday i think but because i had something really spicy and i think we need a really spicy something okay. like we've got our spicy ones are spicy but nothing's meant to kill you at some point, maybe we want to make something that's meant to kill you. Someone okay. this actually spurred yesterday because someone came up with a name at an event we were at that we needed for a stick of salami that that's a great name. And he called it Meat Sweats. Meat Sweats. You know, I was like, oh, if we make a really spicy one, we can use that name. <laughs> so that's on my brain uh, right now. Yeah, I like that. Okay. So, you, okay. Okay. Spicy. So when you're not doing Salt Blade... Uh, what do you... <laughs> that's a good one scott <laughs> i know i know but but what do you I, like to do for fun and excitement i, I mean i used area? to i used to do things right like i used to i used to sailboat race and i used to snowboard and i used to do all these other things in the last okay. six-ish years i haven't done so much of any of those things anymore like self is okay. all consuming in my life but but eventually i'll get back to all of those things back to the Back to hiking, back to snowboarding, okay. back to yes, sailboat racing again. Hopefully, it's time. Okay, but all those Since things take er- time, and I don't. That's time is the one luxury I don't have much of right now. Right. So since it's early, and we both have been you know quietly sipping our coffee during this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Where's a good place for coffee that you like to go to? I, you know, I'm I'm a home coffee maker. Like, and okay. I, nothing fancy. Like I, I, okay. I like drip coffee and I do, mm-hmm. I use equal exchange or the coffee beans that I use. Those are the ones I okay. use in my salami as well, but, um, I keep it pretty simple. I rarely, rarely buy coffee out only if I'm really desperate. Normally this house is kind of a buzz of activity uh-huh. in the pre pandemic eras. I had a couple of people come over and work out with us in the mornings. And so, you know, one or two pots of coffee are consumed daily here. And yes, yeah. people would shower here right now. I actually have a couple employees living in this house, but uh, because okay. their student housing ran out, they, okay. they could have given us more weeks of work if they stayed around, but they couldn't get a month to month housing situation. So I'm like, okay, they're staying in our there house. Now. <laughs> but there so we're go. getting back to what feels like normal around here okay. just by having a little more activity, but yeah, a coffee is just constantly available. So, okay. If people want to uh-huh. know more about salt blade, and more importantly, want to try your product because it's it's delicious. Thank you. Where 
Where do you want them to go and find you? Well, you know, any spot that carries me, I'm thrilled that they do. And I will say it's more places than I could know right now. But I do know mm-hmm. that all the metropolitan markets, they were an early supporter. Hagen's Northwest, not all of them carry it. Some of the stores are smaller, but their five largest ones definitely carry it. Um, mm-hmm. All the town and country markets have it now. Easiest spot to find it for anybody is definitely just online on our website. Mm-hmm. So it's just saltway.com. And yeah, and that, you do. We do ship. you ship internationally? No, I cannot ship internationally. It okay. would require so, a USDA export process that I've not bothered to mess with right now. I can ship to U.S. territories, including like Guam and Puerto Rico and things, but I can't okay. can't go outside of U.S. territories. So pretty much anywhere USPS uh, yep. ships to. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So, so somebody listening in New York could could visit saltblade.com, try yes. your stuff out. Yes. And I, I would have to look right now. I've, I've done this before, but I don't know now. I think we may have sold to every single state in the U.S. right now. I That's think I may have shipped cool, to everyone. It? it is cool. There may be one That's or two that cool. are still missing, and I'm not sure. I'd have to look at the map again and chart it all out again. But I think we've I'd be really everyone. curious to see if, if there was one missing or one or two. What, what, there what might state? be. Like, I've, done, I've updated this during the pandemic. It was one of the things I did because that's when online went bigger than it ever had before. Right. And at some point, I just, I just did, okay, since the pandemic began, how many places have we shipped to? And I drew a U.S. map and I colored it all in and I posted that onto social media, like thanking everybody from all these, like, because it was pretty good. And then within a week of that, I certainly had a ton more states because people saw it in a state that hadn't actually ordered it yet, just jumped uh-huh. on and ordered. So I got several more there states you know. jumping in right away. But yeah, and it was it was interesting. And then I look back historically over all sales and I'm like, yeah, I think by now we might have covered every state. I have one, one, unfortunately, this is the way these things always work is I always I go, oh yeah, I wanted to know about this. But you mentioned Zeke's Pizza. Yes. And you did a collaboration with them where your salamis were featured on, I think, a couple of their pies. We've done um, it. Yeah, we've done it uh, a couple of times with them too. But the, the summertime one, we used pepperoni and salami picante and mm-hmm. did it on three different pies, that same combination of meats. And then in the wintertime, we did one with our chorizo and Olson Farms, our farmer, is famous as a potato farmer. They used his potatoes and our chorizo, which uses his meat on a series of pies that we did in the winter in like sort of November, December, January. And that was a great one. And then, you know, we have not had the capacity to make enough meat for them, you know, but as we grow now and they were slicing their own meat in a commissary that they have Mm -hmm. and they found out, I think that they can't do that. So we, we're still talking with each other and we'll hopefully get together when we can figure out how to slice for them and produce okay. for them. And then we'll get some things going again, but it'll take us a little bit of time. We've got to grow a bit to make enough production for them. Well, hurry up. I like seeds. <laughs> I, you know, one of the things I miss about not living, you know, in salary anymore is there's, there's certain things in, in pizza being one of them. Yeah. Well, here's yeah. the thing that, that the, uh, that Zeke's did better than anybody else immediately during the pandemic was home delivery of beer. Like it, 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 they killed it. They were selling beer cheaper than you could buy it in the grocery store. And they were bringing it to your doorstep with a pizza. It was fantastic. We're both of an age where the idea of beer home delivery <laughs> or cocktails to go is just I won't say it's crazy to me. I, like a lot of my childhood, I, well, I went to school in New Orleans at Tulane University. And oh, to me, the idea okay. of a 21 as a drinking age instead of 18 is crazy. It's just crazy. Um, but the idea that you can't walk outside with a beer in your hand is also crazy. Why can you, why is it legal inside the door, not outside the door? So I'm of a yeah. mentality that this is correct. Okay. We finally got it right here. So. I, you know, have lived here my entire life. I, I, I remember, um, when my kids were little, um, their mom and I divorced and they moved to Cincinnati. Hmm. Have you ever been to Cincinnati? No, never. Okay. So it's an interesting city. And I remember I, I'll say it was my first visit there. We were, we we're taking a tour around and their mom was driving me around town and she was, Oh, you've got to check these out. Drive through grocery stores. You drive in and you kind of say, oh, I'd like, you know, a bag of Cheetos and a gallon of milk and a half rack of the local beer. And they put it in your car for, and you're in, you don't leave the car. And yep. I'm like, 
No, I grew up in South Florida, and that was a thing there too. That my these little convenience stores that look kind of like a gas station, and you pop your trunk, <sighs> and they just put it all in your trunk and close it. You hand them a credit these, card, or it was cash mostly at that time. But but these you drove through. I mean, you're yeah, in, yeah. you're inside the store, and I was just like, so anyway, I I equate that whole alcohol thing back what House Ohio was handling it to Washington State's you know restrictions. And then during the pandemic, now we have cocktails to go. And what an interesting way to help keep restaurants going. Yes. Yeah. Zeke's, you're telling me that they were selling beer cheap. They were. It was was crazy. And good beers. (laughs) Yeah. No, I know. No, I think, you see, I think it's one of the things that, you know, that's, how everyone's adapted. Some, some people have adapt, adapted successfully. Some people have not, but I, I love hearing like, you know, well, delivery of beer. Now, if they would just deliver to Wenatchee, can you, can you put in a word with geeks and see I if will, you can get I them will. to deliver? I know. Recently you know I want a hot opened, pizza and cold beer. I know they've opened several locations recently up in uh, Bellingham. So we'll see what we can talk them into now. There we go. All right. Well, what else? I'll let you have the last word. Anything? That no, you want to share? no, I don't have anything. I want to thank all your audience for listening. This has been a ton of fun and I appreciate everybody out there. Thank you all so much for all your support during all this crazy times. Yeah. And thank you for being on here. And I'm uh, looking forward to our um, next time Kenzie's in town. Uh, we want to come over and see the facility. No, I can't wait. Can't um, wait to show it to you now. Funk- yeah, because it's going to have changed. Yes. So we're looking forward to that. So, well, thank Fantastic. you, sir. And thank you, Scott. All right, well, take care. All right. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.